and welcome to episode 5 of our Doctor Who Flux Hot Takes. Today we're discussing Survivors of the Flux. I'm Rob. And I'm Dave. And Dave, we're almost at the end of our journey. It's gone so quickly to me. Has, has it been that way for you? Yeah, it is very odd to think that there is only one more left in this run. Yeah, now look, uh, I'll say up front, I fear we're going to run a little long tonight because I have a lot to say about this episode, but I'll do my best to talk fast. So without any further ado, let's rip in. We always kick off with a word of the week. Do you have one, Dave? I do. My word of the week this week is eggs. Eggs. My word of the week is stony. Cool. Mmm. All right, we always kick off with some opening thoughts too. I'll open the batting this week to say, for mine, we're back in episode one territory here for me. An episode made up of lots of little scenes all whacked together. Scenes that I think are probably quite easy to write when you don't have to provide the usual amount of connective tissue between them. You just write these little scenes, you know, where you, you show something grand like, oh, here's a thousand weeping angels for no apparent reason. Or we have someone saying something dramatic or doing something dramatic, then just leap to something else. It's Rise of Skywalker type screenwriting, if I can put it that way. So cards on the table, Dave. Broadly, I didn't like this. It was nothing like last week. Fair enough. I have two opening thoughts. Mm-hmm. The first is a factual one, which is that I'm very aware as we discuss this episode and as I watch this episode, this is episode five of six. Mm-hmm. And usually that means that this is the one that gets to shift all of the players, all of the chess pieces around in such a way that they're ready for the finale. So I get technically what this is and, and that I think needs to be stated at the front. Okay. To my experience watching this, as I started watching, I thought, this is a really nice scene. And I thought, this is a really nice bit. And then I thought, this is a really nice bit. And as the episode went on, however, I started to realise that some of these nice bits were starting to get a little bit dull. Mm-hmm. I wasn't seeing them fit in together all that well. Then they started to become bits I didn't care that much about. And I'm sorry to say that my enjoyment, which started quite high in uh, in this episode, went down quite a bit over the course of this episode and i watched this at lunchtime so unusually i've had a few hours to let it percolate Mm. my view has probably slid a little bit further in fact since i stopped watching it and i've been mulling it all over so um not the best episode of the season from me well that's quite interesting that i noted it was made up of just all these little scenes whacked together and your comments are very similar Yes, I, I, I don't think that, that we can escape, escape that fact. It was a very bitsy episode. But the contrast I make with episode one, which I enjoyed, I gave an eight to episode one. Mm-hmm. And yes. episode one was a lot of bitsy stuff that was asking questions and making me think, where is this going? How does this piece together? Oh, that's interesting. Whereas now I'm expecting the pieces to start to come together. I'm starting to get an idea of what this jigsaw looks like. Mm. And... I'm not necessarily liking what's happening now, and uh, I'm not that interested in the mysteries that are still going. So that sounds very negative. It is a weaker episode for the season. I didn't hate it. Let's get into it and, and talk about the things we liked and didn't like. All right, let's talk about the Doctor, because almost right away in this episode, it's revealed she's not an angel, and it was just a transport mechanism, and that's it. So It Dave, was bubble wrap all along. I was about to say, you were right on our last hot take. It's division bubble wrap. There we are. Yep. That, that what, look, look, they were either going to go one of two ways. They were either going to do a real Doctor Light episode and make us all worry that she was really an angel, or the other way was just to get it out of the way very quickly and go, it's okay, kids, the Doctor's not an angel. They took that approach. 
perfectly fair. And I thought the scene that that led into was actually a really good scene. Mm. And um, and there was some language in there that I actually thought harked back to uh, the great vampire. The concept of dominion over people was mm. a very sort of great vampire state of decay little phrase. Don't know if that's an accident, but it it rang back for me. But But at this point, I was going, okay, I'm into this. I'm curious. What's happening? This is good. All right. There's a couple of points I want to make about the Doctor. Uh, we had a near unquiet dead moment from Jodie. I don't know if you noticed this, where the Doctor notes that a bunch of refugees are going to need somewhere to go, and that will cause a fight for Earth. So apparently Earth's not going to be welcoming Dave. <laughs> the Doctor's decided it's bugger off refugees, full stop. No detail that, you know, some of them might be Daleks or Cybermen. Sure, they're undesirable for obvious reasons. But she just comments across the board with no specifics, and that just came across as really odd that she was acknowledging there was a bunch of displaced people out there in the in the universe going to be coming to Earth, but they're not allowed to, to, to go to Earth. I thought, ooh, <laughs> I'm not sure that's what you mean, Chibnall, but it's it's an unquiet dead moment for mine. Oh, okay. No, I missed that one. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, that that's one of them. The second is, will the Doctor get her memories back? The, um, the next time trailer hints at it, and Chibnall seems to have really doubled down on everything. Is Jodie really about to remember thousands of pre-Hartnell Doctors? I think it's just such a silly thing, though, Dave. I really do. In fact, the only way I think he can really pull out of the timeless child thing and have any respect across the broader fan base, because let's face it, the concept ain't well liked out there, is to kill Tech Tayun. Okay, check. We've done that. And somehow the Doctor rejects or doesn't even receive the memories. The Division gets blown up, so there's no chance of her ever remembering. And in the end, Jodie has this idea that she was once other people. But as far as she remembers, it all started off being Hartnell, and that's how she remembers her life. I'm wondering if that's where it's going. I think that's very unlikely. Okay. I, I, I think that having made the Fob Watch such a big thing in this episode... That that has to be a big part of next episode. If if that's a, a a faint, then that would be, I think, a real cheat. So I don't think that's going to happen. Um, can we get on from there into the Tectonian stuff? Sure. Uh, this was the point at which I went from not being sure how this episode was going to not really caring how this episode was going anymore. I I found Tectonian's portrayal flat, unimaginative. I think what Jim was going for, and what I think some fans will go for is, isn't it kind of cool that she's just an old lady in a sun hat, and isn't that really weird and not what you expect, and isn't she mysterious, and isn't and and look, if if fans took that away and they got that vibe, great, that that yeah. that's a really good thing. I didn't. I just sat there and thought, you are trying too hard. Why is she a woman in a sun hat? Because that's going to look weird and kooky um it it it, it, it but it, it feels like you're trying to be weird and kooky i'm not a big fan of the timeless child thing so i i didn't care that she was tactile and i was like yeah whatever when the doctor's doing this whole you stole my life i was like I, I, again if you're a fan who saw that jody giving that speech and jody gave it well she she read that script well sure uh, i i give jody the points for that but but if you're a fan who is invested in the Timeless Child thing and, and, and you saw that speech and you thought that is a powerful speech that Jodie's given about being robbed of her memories and, and, and what Tactune's done to her, great. Again, that, that's a really great thing. But for me, it's like, well, this is a thing that's kind of just came out of nowhere three or four episodes ago. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I suppose probably eight or nine now. But, but you know, at the end of one full season ago, it hasn't been part of the malore or the mythos that I grew up with. So I was like, where, where is this coming from? This, you stole my lives. I'm like, well, <laughs> you only knew about that 
yesterday. So mm, yeah, I don't yeah. know. It, it, it didn't vibe for me. That's that's a long negative rant for me, Rob. You in sync with me or disagree? Oh, let me give a long negative rant now, Dave. Uh, the division, <laughs> or, or is it just division now? You know, it's it's sort of hope that you know we just forget it used to be the division. Anyway, I think this was a bad idea in the first place. You know, even going back all those episodes, Gallifrey already had the Celestial Intervention Agency, and the division just seems to double up on it for apparently no other reason than Chibnall could invent something of his own to insert into the series. We already had a shadowy group on Gallifrey who looked after what was happening in the universe now now we have another well well done Chibnall and now it's not just a Gallifrey thing but they're sitting outside of time and space and they've got you know people from every planet race whatever it's this ridiculously huge thing which I think even Tech Tayun acknowledged like yeah we've become this you know huge thing which makes it one of those where do we go from here things in the overall narrative it's the kind of thing that's just so large and powerful it's going to need to be destroyed Otherwise, forevermore in Doctor Who, when it's not showing up, it's going to be conspicuous by its absence. You know, like, I don't know, the hybrid or something, you know, super important for a season and then never heard of again. Look, that is correct. I I will say, in a, in a partial defence, there are aspects of the concept that I'm quite interested in. Uh, I've long said that one of the things that I like most about Star Trek Deep Space Nine, which is my favourite of the Trek franchises, is the concept of Section 31, which, for those of you who, who aren't aware, you've got the Federation, which is this mm. wonderful, altruistic, good body that, that, that lives by very high levels of morals and principles and never does anything bad. And then, as things get really bad for the Federation, we discover that actually there's been this group called Section 31 that's been there all the time, they're off the books, and when we need to do things that the Federation's morality doesn't let it do, they just quietly slip in the back and just just sort of deal with it. It's a really interesting concept, and I like that idea. I like the idea of something, you know, paradise not being quite as perfect as you think it is. But we already had it as the CIA. And, and that's right. And look, I, I, I can buy the name change. I mean, the CIA was 40 years ago. Okay, yes, my continuity heart doesn't like it. and It would have liked it to be the CIA, but okay. Um, mm. So so, so I like some of those concepts of, yes, the tumblers don't interfere, except when we're doing it over here. But you're right, Rob, I think, in that it was so big and so incredible and, like, outside the universe and creates universes and stuff. I was like, I'm, I am I was lost at that point. I, I was mm. like, hang, hang on. I don't even know what bits I missed because I just, I just know I was a bit lost <laughs> at that point. Well, even now you kind of wonder if the Division has been around all this time and it's so powerful, why hasn't it stopped the universe-ending events that have happened before? I mean, obviously I know the answer is because no one had made it up in past Doctor Who stories. But it makes you think, in-universe, Dave, what is the Division's actual goal? I really don't know what it wants. I, I understand Tech Tayun and perhaps some of the other Division people want to end the universe to stop the Doctor, even though she also makes the comment that they're not scared of the Doctor, they're just wary of her, which makes destroying the universe an absolutely bizarre response. If you're just wary of the Doctor, I mean, then it becomes join us, Doctor, you know, a scene after that. And I'm, I'm just really confused at that point, like destroy the universe to get her one minute ask her to team up the next minute. It's just cliche city. It's muddled thinking, let alone muddled writing. It really doesn't bear close scrutiny, honestly. Yeah, a question for you, Rob. Mm -hmm. Is Tech Tayun millions, if not billions, of years old? 
you would have to assume so because Gallifrey's that old and she was there at the start, you know, kicking all this stuff off, uh, you know, because <laughs> Rassilon and Omega have been sidelined in Chris Chibnall's mind, so she, she has to be. In, in which case, why does she care about finding immortality? Unless, I guess, she's got an infinite cycle of regenerations, which is possible. But yeah. I, I must admit, if you set up a character who is so old and so powerful that they've lived for millions, possibly billions of years, uh, to then kill them in seconds. <laughs> it's sort of like, to, well, today's the day that things just don't go your way, sorry. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I thought that was really fun. Unless, of course, and, and, and this is, look, look the let, let, let's give out here the caveat we've had to give for five episodes now, unless there's something in the final episode to come that says that Tactarian wasn't dead and there is a twist there, that that to me was kind of like, look at this, millions of years old, she's different, she's dead now. Yeah. Just before I came online, uh, someone on Twitter was saying, do you think Tech Tayun is really dead? And some people were saying yes, some were saying no. So, you know. Yeah, uh, look, it, it could go either way. But on, on the face of it, I thought that bringing her in to write her out so easily would be a mistake if that is in fact what they've done. Yeah, I, I much preferred it when I thought she was the white guardian, to be honest, but, you know. <laughs> Let's move on to Yaz, Dan, and Eustatius Jericho. We can probably group them together, Dave. Yes. Because they're off doing their own thing. And I, I think here we're in Indiana Jones territory, and that's not profound by any stretch. I know when I say it out loud like that. But it's it's even more on the nose than it first seems when you know exactly what in Indiana Jones it's cribbing from, like revealing the attacker's tattoo on the ship. That's a total rip-off of the uh, Brotherhood of the Cruciform Sword in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, where Indy sees his allegiance is tattooed on his chest. Although, I guess that does have its use later when we see the unit trooper with the snake tattoo on her wrist, and we realise, retrospectively, that anyone with that is being controlled by the Grand Serpent. So these people chasing Yaz, Dan and Jericho back in the 1900s are actually controlled by the Grand Serpent, who we meet later in the episode. I'll take a breath. I didn't have the same issue with that that you clearly did. I think that they were so overtly and unsubtly homaging slash ripping off Indiana Jones, you know, from that very first scene. I mean, the, the framing and the lighting and the setup of that very first scene mm. where they break into the vault, I thought, look, look, you are so clearly doing Indiana Jones without any hint, hint of um, subtlety that, that, <laughs> that, that, that okay, I'll, I'll go along with it because you're, you're saying it to me. You know, it's, it's like when you get a shark film and they deliberately do a Jaws-like scene. So everyone goes, yeah, we get it. We've all seen Jaws. We know that we're doing this. I thought it was the same. You know, we've all seen Indiana Jones. You know, we know. Let's have some fun. And and I did have some fun in a number of those scenes with that trio, but I have no idea what they were doing. <laughs> well, there was a lot of physical comedy, which I think was meant to be for laughs, you know, uh, with Dan and Jericho going up and down on the ropes. It totally messed with the tone of the piece for me. Like, I was thinking, if these guys are in deep poop and, are, you know, trying to find this artefact, which is very, very important, then sell that, not the bumbling. But if it has to be there... Having the two blokes bumble about while Super Yaz just glides in, you know, like Wonder Woman on her rope, I was thinking, no, 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 no. Better writing would be have the two companions bollocksing it up, and it's actually the old boy, who you think is probably the least capable. He glides in, you know, that's cool. And you cover it off with a line that in his army service, he was in the engineers or something, which is why he can use the ropes properly, and our two companions are equally inept. You know, that's how I'd do it. But no, of course, uh, Super Yaz comes into play. <laughs> yeah, look, I laughed at all the right points with it. So I'm, I'm kind of relaxed about that thing. I think superficially their plotline 
more or less worked. It had some nice ideas. It was very, very well shot. And the the attempt to give a worldwide scope was, I thought, pretty cool. And I liked that. Uh, I, I, I still don't quite know what this was all about or for. Well, it was for nothing. Yeah, that's that's kind of the impression I'm left with, which is a shame for a plot thread that I enjoyed. This, this is what I'm saying. Like at the time, I'm going, okay, this is kind of fun. It's well shot. This is good, and and I walk away going, yeah, it wasn't bad. And then uh, over a couple of hours, I think about it, I'm going, but but what's it for? Well, <laughs> and so it goes down a bit. Well, this is the thing. I mean, I, I don't say it was for nothing. You know, flippantly, they let's go through it. They get the pot. They decipher the pot. They kill an assassin. They meet the holy man up in the mountains. They get a cryptic message to find their dog. They go to China. They write a huge message on the ground, which somehow over 100 years doesn't get overgrown by the foliage they had cut down or anything like that. Then in the future, Carvanista gets the message and dismisses it with a simple, oh, I can't time travel. The end. So yeah, what, I, what's I, the point? I, I, I thought there we were heading for a very big case of a Canis ex machina, but it turns out, um, <laughs> turns out they didn't do that. Did there couple of questions without notice no sign of the miniature sociopath peggy i don't think they mentioned her at all you know have they packed her off to boarding school or sociopath school or something i don't know but maybe she's off earning the money to pay for their worldwide travels in nice clothes <laughs> oh that's that could be very possible too also what happened to the village it was in bloody space last time i saw it and with the the boundary crumbling around it so so what happened there don't know move on you know it's it's one of those leaps i spoke of earlier where they just leap to another thing and you're just meant to forget about what happened in so, the previous So scene. was the 1901 village in space or was it just the 1961 village? I'm pretty sure it was the 01 village. Might have to check that, actually. I'll fact check that later. I mean, I mean, certainly there was that bit of the barrier that they could see the Doctor through, but was the whole village behind the energy barrier? I'm not sure. Hmm. But later, I think we get word that Unit has blocked off the village... How have they done that? That's you know? true. That, that, that <laughs> Again, is true. I don't so, know. No, that, that is true. Certainly by the 60s, you know, he's able to walk into that village and, and take it over. So so something was resolved there. And let me use this to make a, a point. There is a lot to keep in your head now that we're five episodes into Flux. Mm. A, a, a good example for that was, as I was watching the, you know, previously in Doctor Who Flux stuff at the start, and, and the woman we now know is Tech Taeyun came up, I, I did have a moment of... That's right. There was a woman two episodes ago, and we, we, she's mysterious. I forgot about her, and and she looked not because I didn't like her, I wasn't interested, but there are so many threads to keep in my head that Jodie having a vision of a wet random woman three weeks ago had just just exited, and, mm. and again, it's it's the same with the, the 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 nuances of the village. Now, whether when we watch this as fans for the sixth, seventh, eighth time over the next forty years. We start to see all these bits and all these hints that all came together. Um, again, not saying that's not possible, but but when you're watching for the first time, even as someone podcasting and taking notes, there is stuff that I'm just not keeping in my head. Fair enough. Let's move on to the Grand Serpent, because these were possibly the most interesting parts of the episode to me. Oh. But they weren't without issues. I mean, if we're to believe that the Grand Serpent has zipped through time and infiltrated all these different eras of unit... I guess we'd have to believe that different unit leaderships of the past, including the Brigadier, never actually cottoned onto it. <laughs> it's only that when we got to Kate Stewart that the penny dropped. Is is that the message we're supposed to take away? I find that quite weird, Dave. I have to say, I actually thought this was the weakest of the elements of the story. Oh. I just 
didn't quite buy what was going on here at all. At first, I was sort of thinking, well, what, why is this this guy spent 40 years of his life on Earth just waiting for this moment? That, that seemed a waste of time. When it was implied that maybe he was t- doing this in a few days, I thought, okay, that's, that's you know, maybe solve that problem, Point, points to it. But, but again, if he's got all this power and all this authority, and, and, and yes, there's clearly an implication that he's fallen from power as the Grand Serpent, or maybe that... The flux has destroyed his empire. I, I don't quite I think know. The latter, yes. Right. So it still seemed to me that you know him having to you know do job interviews for forty years seemed to be a little <laughs> little low class for a guy who could just Skype the Sontarans and say, "Dude, let's you know bring come on in." I, I don't know quite what the point of his plot was, other than to be in charge of units so he can attack the mm. Lupari. Did he? I don't know. I, yeah. I, 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 don't, I don't know why the Sontarans can't attack Lupari anyway. The fact, I think, he's, he's lost his empire in the future. He's gone back to the past knowing that Earth will be where people go and he wants to talk to the... or let the Sontarans and, and cetera in. But as you say, he could just talk to them directly. So why do you have to involve UNIT? And I'm really not sure how ending UNIT in 2017 helped with that. I know it provides a tie into that silly New Year's thing a few years mm, back where yep. UNIT was reduced to the helpline. But we see him in 2021, and he's still in the unit office uh, behind the desk. I found that very strange. And I also found it super-duper weird, Dave, that Kate Stewart knows the Grand Serpent is a dangerous alien and he's controlling unit. And apparently after telling him that she knows this, she just goes home. Uh, what now? You know? <laughs> Surely you'd have a squad of soldiers burst in and arrest the guy at the point you say, look, I know who you are. I know what you're up to. Now you're under arrest. Instead, it's like, oh, look, I, I, I know you want to kill me and I'm blocking that with some special mind block thing going on. How does that conversation even end? We aren't shown it, you know. Does, does she say, well, uh, all right, then uh, I've told you I know all about you. Um, uh, see you later. Bye now. <laughs> you know, it's just it's just terrible writing when you stop and think about how does that scene end? Why does she not arrest him there or even try and kill him? You know, these, these short scenes, Dave, with no connective tissue or thought between them just drive me crazy in this episode. Yeah, and I suspected for a number of viewers and and again fair enough the power of the confrontation between kate and serpent dude was probably enough to make them punch the air and go yeah you know on your girl well done and um and that's great um yeah i kind of just didn't quite get what was going on and and i think that we are also in that territory now of something that chibnall has done and look frankly moffat's done as an even rtd did to some, some extent of of putting things into the past of the show Mm. kind of does undermine the show a little bit because Kate was able to work out that this obviously alien dude was an alien, but no one in the past could, including Brigadier. That kind of undermines him. Where was this dude all through the 70s where John Pertwee was hanging out? Did he just sort of like, oh, the Doctor's having his exile here, so I'll just just skip away? Um, or, Or was he in the background? You know, was he the one that sent Chin in to try and undermine the claws of Axos? No, I, I don't know. <laughs> but it, it, it's kind of like, you know, the, the, the same problem we have with Torchwood. The moment you say Torchwood's been there for 120 years, you have to go, well, where was Torchwood during the horror of Fang, Fang Rock? Where was Torchwood during the Day of the Daleks? Um, it's a problem yeah. for fans, but um, yeah, look, I, I thought that whole thing was, was quite weak and including a, a moment that I thought was very irritating. Do you want to guess what it is, Rob? Uh, the brigadier being a corporal? The brigadier being a corporal. 
<laughs> I made notes on this, Dave. I'll start by saying the line he delivers, Lethbridge Stewart here, I want to call to the RAF, please, is taken from part four of Terror of the Autons. Yes, I thought it must be. Now, quick observation on the corporal thing, and I know you've probably got notes on it as well. If he was the new corporal, the first thing I thought was, does that mean Lethbridge Stewart came up through the ranks? I mean, I'm not into his backstory, but I presumed he would have just came in as an officer. Come on, you know, the double-barreled surname, the age he makes brigadier at, indeed the fact he makes brigadier at all. Surely he wasn't an enlisted man, Dave. Yeah, I, I had exactly the same thing. And it comes back to the point I made back in episode two about modern production teams simply not understanding how the military works. I will put it down right now. There is no credible way that he goes from corporal to uh, lieutenant colonel, as he was, I think, in the web of fear. It's very, very hard to see his epaulets in the web of fear, but I think he's lieutenant colonel there in, in the space of eight years or, or however long it was. It, it's a matter of years. Like, like it, takes you, it takes you 20 years to get to lieutenant colonel if you mm-hmm. joined Sandhurst at 18, did your officer training and worked your way up through the officer ranks. The idea that he you know, came in as a corporal and then at some point had to then transition and do his officer training and start the officer... Dr- like, I'm not yeah. going to go on and be, be really, really nerdy any more than I have been about this, except to say it was a, just a stupid comment. All they had to do was say he's a new captain and it would have worked fine. Instead, they've gone corporal and shown they do not understand what they are talking about. <laughs> well, I made some notes that, you know, we, we are getting into unit dating territory problems to some degree here. If we're to believe he was an enlisted man in 67, in unit... Yet when we first met him in the past, he was a colonel, and that was presumably 68, and he wasn't in unit. <laughs> so not only had he left unit and jumped all these ranks. <laughs> yeah, so look, if you go with the original unit dating, I think Web of Fear is the mid-70s, um, because it takes even place... Even still. And I was just going to say that. Even if you take the generous unit dating, which is Web of Fear is the mid-70s, that still only gives him eight years to do about 20 to 25 years of service, which doesn't work. And and we've also taken away this idea that Lethbridge-Stewart founded UNIT, which is a real undermining of the character, I think. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I was just going to say, and we have to believe that he's, he left UNIT, went over to the Scots Guards, which is where we first meet him, and then he comes back to UNIT. You know, my, my head hurts. I think the easiest answer is that the lion in the in the show, you say captain, I think, you know, they could have said that's our colonel, which would have meant, meant that he's already met the second doctor as a colonel, then moved to UNIT, and, you know, we're just a year out. They're saying 67. The TV show is 68. As you're saying, though, UNIT dating could make it at 75 oh it's just a mess i'm gonna stop talking about it it was just silly yeah look i mean i could go on at length about that scene and i will (laughs) not not quite um look the other thing as well just again having a full four-star general as again i think just looking at zeppelets i think he was you know that's the kind of guy who's chief of the general staff not yeah the guy who's in charge of setting up a small unit i just don't understand why yeah. I just don't understand why um, this guy had to found unit with a guy who wasn't Lethbridge Stewart. Yeah, it just, just it was just stupid. Chibnall just likes inventing stuff and saying that, oh, I, I invented that now. I, I invented the Doctor's backstory. I invented our unit started. I did this. You know, I, I think it's ego-driven, honestly. Yeah, and look, again, if you didn't care, great. Sorry, that's the kind of thing that annoys me. 
Yeah, well, there is a 50-plus year history here that he's messing with, so it's understandable that some of us might be a little peeved. Something else that peeved me, Chibnall telling us what we can already see. The old woman deciphering the pot, Dave. Jericho tells Yaz and Dan she's deciphering the pot. They know why they're there. The pretend steward breaks his false tooth full of poison and dies. Hey, says Yaz, he's broken a false tooth full of poison and he's dead. Oh, thanks, Yaz, that's profound. Bell flies towards a weird thing in space. That huge monolith doesn't look foreboding at all. Oh my god, I laughed out loud at that one. Why would she say huge monolith to herself? Even if she's one of these people who do talk to themselves, at best it would be, that doesn't look foreboding at all. Not, that huge monolith doesn't look foreboding at all. We can see it's a huge monolith, Chris. <sighs> I'm going to breathe, Dave. I'm going to breathe. Maybe he's auditioning for Big Finish. <laughs> Maybe he is. That's his, that, that's, he is. That's his pension plan. See, I can write... For big finish, uh, look, look. Uh, yep, that that's all true. Uh, on the other hand, though, I, I will be positive. I thought that the confrontation between the Doctor and Tektayun was actually a very well handled piece of exposition because it was tied into two genuine characters dancing around each other. There was genuine emotion at play. There, there was still a a, a a sense of toying with the doctor and not quite giving just you know wikipedia style answers to her questions so mm. so i actually you know having having regularly called out the exposition of chris chibnall i thought that was a very good example of how you do it because look you do have to have exposition i i do get that mm. I, I thought that scene was actually quite well handled even if i wasn't all that invested in it Okay. A uh, quick comment on Belle. She seems to provide diminishing returns each week she comes back. You know, we first see her and it's Belle's story and she's being awesome at everything and, you know, nothing goes wrong. But each time we see her now, it just seems so tacked on. And I'm presuming she's only there because the baby is important. Otherwise, why introduce the baby at all? You know, just finding Vinda would be enough of a side story. I just find her so uninteresting. I I probably never found it that interesting, so I, I I didn't find it less interesting on this occasion. If I've if I've got to be honest, um, what what I think the bell plot did highlight for me is that problem that we're getting here because we're in episode five. So episode two, I think it is, where Bell's introduced and she's flying she's flying a Lupari craft. I was like, ooh, Lupari craft. That's mm. interesting. I wonder how it all fits together. Where did she get that craft? I guess we're going to find out over the next four episodes. Whereas now I'm looking at her in episode five and she's got a Lupari craft and dog guy's saying, oh, how did she get that? And I'm like, yes, how did she get that? Somebody please tell me because we've got a lot of explanation to come out in the next you know, hour and a half and we don't seem to be getting it this week. So are we just not getting it? Is the reason she's got a Lupari craft simply so that she's got a Lupari craft so that she can be recalled to Earth for episode six? Yeah. Again, it's possible that in a week's time we're going to go, that was a really clever explanation as to why she had a Lupari craft. But in episode two... You excuse it and you wonder. In episode five, we're starting to worry and go, are these things just not going to be explained? Are we going to find out why Carvanista was trying to throw the Doctor and Yaz into a sea of acid? Or was he just doing that so we could have a dramatic start to episode one and we kind of hope he forgot he's a good guy now? <laughs> Don't know. I think don't I think know the latter but you know in that scene with Carvanista you know one of the Lupari ships floats out of formation 
Uh, now, as we see with what Carvanista subsequently does with Bell, he has the power to grab ships and he can place them back in formation. Why didn't he just do that with the ship that went out of formation? Why, why did he have to grab Bell? Oh, it's because Bell's in the other ship. Oh, the writing, Dave. It's just on the nose. My God. And and let me put my suggestion here. If there'd been a 10-second scene of the guy, the pilot of that ship, sitting there, he's bored. How long are we going to defend the planet Earth? How are we going to sit here? Hang on, what's that? That shouldn't be here. Oh my god, it's a Sontaran! Ah! And then his ship floats away. Mm. And that would have been a really kind of interesting way to go, ooh, the Sontaran's coming back. Ooh, they started to sabotage ships. Ooh, okay. Where's that going? Um, I think that would have been more interesting than the random guy sort of getting bored and floating off and not responding. Mm. But but we've already got a lot in this episode. Maybe there was maybe there was an explanation, maybe it was cut. We also have Vinder and Diane. They meet up, and I couldn't think of a more boring pairing. That's all I've noted on that. Yeah. <laughs> look, look, I, I'm, I genuinely expect there's going to be a payoff for that, and I'm happy to leave that for a week. All right. Uh, look, the, the final note I've got here, Rob, is just the guru. I think in some episodes, the guru would have been brilliant. I'm not quite sure the tone was right in this one. I, no. I did get um, strong It Ate Half Hot Mum vibes from him. And uh, I did see before we came on that our friends over at Diddly Dumb have reached a very similar conclusion, I suspect. Uh, so not alone there. Yeah. <laughs> Sports test time. Let's go. Folks, you know the drill. We talk MVP of the week, player of the week, and foul of the week. Dave, do you want to hit me with your MVP of the week? Uh, for the first time, I think, in three seasons, I am going to give my MVP to Yaz. Wow, okay. I thought in this one, there was a really nice balance between useless Yaz and super Yaz. I thought she showed a competence that wasn't uh, suddenly out of nowhere and amazing, but that did feel like somebody with some leadership and some common sense sort of guiding the other ones along. I thought she was quite well replayed. I thought she had some good lines. And look, of all the players in this, I thought, no, actually, she's the one I, I really got the most out of this time. So I, I, I'm going to give her, having having been a big detractor of Yaz's character, I'm giving her MVP. Fair enough. In this episode, the design of the division base was something that genuinely made me say, wow. It was very TARDIS-like. You know, at first I thought it was a TARDIS and I thought, oh, having a tree like that in the middle of a TARDIS, that looks absolutely amazing. So I'm giving the MVP to the designer or the designers responsible for that. You know, in fact, if this was Jodie's TARDIS set, I would have never got sick of seeing it week to week. It was just the right level of weirdness and beauty with all those pink leaves on the tree and ugly technology all coexisting and and looking like some sort of organic machine in a way we've never really seen before. You know, it's astounding to me that this is probably a throwaway sort of thing. You know, surely we don't keep going back to the Division's base all the time. And yet it's designed, in my eyes, way better than the TARDIS set we've had for the last few years. I think that's a really good pick, Rob. Everything in this episode looked fantastic. It was a really good visual episode. And I think had it not been, I would have gone from, yeah, I've got lots and lots of niggles to, I just didn't enjoy this. And and, and the cinematography really held this up. Alrighty. Moving into Player of the Week, I'll take lead. Having Swarm and Azure show up and off Tech Taeyun, I thought was just great. You know, it continues this idea that they'll just zap people they don't like. 
They talk a big game like all baddies do, but they follow up on it. And I think that's massively important when you write bad guys. That's my play of the week. I came very close to saying the uh, the same thing or to having Swarm as a player over the week. I, I thought that thing was really good. But my play of the week was the scene with the Doctor and the Angels. I thought having really had the high of the season, season last week with Village of the Angels to continue with that a little bit longer and have Jody and the Angels well shot, looking mysterious. That was a strong opening that did grip me in. I was wondering what, what was going on. And, and at that point, I'm thinking this is going to be another really good episode. So that opening stuff with the Angels, play of the week. All right. Hit me with your foul of the week, Dave. Look, I have to go with a personal one here mm. and say that it was the Tectayun reveal because the unfortunate reality for me is when the Doctor says, who are you? And she says, don't you remember? I'm Tectayun. My reaction was, oh. <laughs> Yeah. I'm fully, fully cognizant that there will be people who have gone, yes, Tectayun, we're back. Great. I'm go- I want to know more about this. If that was you, fantastic. Mm. But for me, I'm not invested in this. I, I think it's a dumb idea. And I was just like, oh, yep, we're doing this again. Yeah. So uh, personal choice, many will not disagree, but that was my foul. Yours, Rob? Mine, Dave. The Doctor's hologram message to Yaz. I thought, here it comes, something for the shippers at last. After years, literally years, of there being no sexual magnetism between these two characters on screen or anything between them aside from the fabrication that shippers on twitter would make you know they'd gush over photos oh here's jody and yaz in a photo and they're smiling uh aren't they a great couple suddenly we had something a bit more tangible in the show for the first time and i don't think we need to go down this rabbit hole of them having a relationship at this late stage in the series for both of them they're they're three specials off leaving we don't need this And, you know, as I've said in other discussions about the Doctor and relationships, you know, (laughs) a thousand-year-old immortal and a 20-something woman, yuck. You know, people would freak out if this was a 50-year-old bloke and a 20-something woman, yet somehow someone 20 times that age is okay. But, hey, they've thrown him a bone at long last. Foul of the week. Fair enough. Now, Dave, words of the week. We've both had them. Uh, My word was stony and yours was... Eggs. Eggs. Do you want to explain eggs? I think that in the same way that you can get a lot of different things out of eggs, that get a lot of different reactions from different people, I suspect that that's what this episode is going to be. I looked at this episode, and I think you did too, Rob, and mm-hmm. thought, here's a bunch of scrambled eggs. Lots of things mixed together that don't quite work and, and looks like a bit of a mess and didn't quite work for me. There are going to be people for whom this was a fun episode that did all the things that they love about the Chibnall era, and this was a lovely set of sunny-side-up fried eggs on toast. <laughs> uh, and there's going to be others that are going to say, this is just more Chibnall fantasy. This is just a typical Chibnall boiled egg. Uh, some are going to go, go, you know what, it's just another soft-boiled egg. I predict, having not really dived into re- reaction and trying to keep myself as fresh as I can for the hot take, I predict this is going to be a curate egg, perhaps, in terms of fan opinion. Okay, I, I like that. I like that a lot. My word of the week was stony, and some might be thinking that's going to be a Weeping Angels reference, but it's really not. I mean stony as in stony ground, broken, uneven ground. That's what Flux has been to me. Wildly variable, you know, in, in tone and style between each episode, which may excite some, but I've, I've just found it silly, you know. If you're going to say these six 
episodes are one story, then the story needs to have an even consistent tone lest it feels schizophrenic. Unfortunately, it's been totally uneven to me, so stony. Yeah, this is definitely an episode that I think it would be very hard to just sit there and say, you know what, I want to watch an episode of Doctor Who today. I'll watch Survivors of the Flux. Yeah, no way. Which which you could do with Village, you you could do with some Tarans. Yeah. So look, going into scores, because I know we're we're way over time, my score this week, Dave, is 5 out of 10. This is the lowest I've given all series, and it comes a week after I gave a 9. That's how uneven this series is to me. Uh, Snap. Really? Okay. Yeah. Look. Look. At the start of this episode, I was going. This is. This is. This is heading for a solid eight. I then went down to a seven. And then I thought mm, it's the weakest of the episode so far. It's got to be a six. And then it kept going. And then, and then I was like, this made no sense, and that made no sense, and that corporal thing annoyed me. It's a four. And then as I thought about it, I thought, look, there, there were lots of sequences that I enjoyed. It looked good. I didn't hate this episode, and uh, unfortunately, because we have pulled it to pieces, it might feel like we did. This is not a three or a two. No. Uh, so I think five is fair. It is comfortably the weakest of the season. And again, I think suffers from being the penultimate episode that has heightened expectations, but also had a lot more to do. And I think it suffers from the fact that we can see the finale coming down the path. Mm. And I think we're all, certainly you and I, are getting a little worried there's a lot to tie up, but as, as you've said, could some of it bleed over into at least one or two of the specials? I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm going to put 10 bucks on the table now and mm-hmm. say that there will be a, one or two significant threads which will bleed over and form the mini-arc of Jodie's exit from the series. All right, that sounds like a couple of schooners next time we meet, or uh, pots if I'm down that way. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dave. Next episode is called The Vanquishers. We'll be back in a week's time to talk about it then. We've gone over time, so we'll end it now. I've been Dave. And I've been Rob. Speak next week. See you then. Bye. You've been listening to The Doctor Show with Rob and Dave. Find us online by searching for The Doctor Show. We also love it when you write in. Drop us a line anytime at hello at the dwshow.net. <laughs>